This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and my guest today is author and historian Patrice Dabrowski, who has written a book with Cornell University Press, called The Carpathians, Discovering the Highlands of Poland and Ukraine, published 2021. Patrice, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast here today. Thank you, Stephen. I'm so thrilled and pleased and honored that you should wish to interview me. And after all, that you've gone ahead and read my book, which is also something that's very important. <laughs> of course. And, and I have so many questions for you. Um, But I want to introduce uh, you first to our audience. So Patrice Dabrowski has taught and worked at Harvard Brown, the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and the University of Vienna. She's currently an associate of the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute, an affiliate of the Minda de Gunsberg Center for European Studies, a member of the Board of Directors of the Polish Institute of Arts and Sciences of America, or PIASA, and editor of, of H. Poland, which, which I think does really great work out in public. Dr. Dabrowski is the author of three books, Commemorations and the Shaping of Modern Poland, 2004, Poland, The First Thousand Years, 2014, out in paperback 2016. And this book we'll talk about today, The Carpathians, Discovering the Highlands of Poland and Ukraine. In 2014, she was awarded the Knight's Cross of the Order of Merit of the Republic of Poland. So I'm really honored, Patrice, to, to talk to you today about this book. And I'm going to start in our, our tour of the Tatra Mountains and Tatranitstvo, the Carpathians, really, by asking you what, what brought you to the topic? What was your motivation for getting interested in the subject? Well, Stephen, my uh, experience with the Carpathians goes way, way back. My first encounter with the mountains was when I was on a Kostushko Foundation junior year abroad program many more moons ago than I care to admit back in the days of state socialism. And I learned to climb the mountains, to love the mountains. I spent time going on what they call raide or group excursions. On one of those excursions, I actually met my future husband to whom this book happens to be dedicated. But, of course, that kind of experience is not enough to motivate one to write a book about the Carpathians. At least that was not enough in my case. Uh, As I say in my acknowledgments, one person I credit with planting the seed of interest in the Carpathian Mountains as a historical topic was Professor Simon Sharma. Uh, Back when I was a very, very green graduate student, uh, we had a conversation, and he knew of my interest in this part of the world. And at that time, he had just written his own book, Landscape and Memory. Wonderful book. And uh, did I get the title right, Lance? Yes. Good. Uh, And uh, what he asked me was, what landscape do Poles identify with or somehow love the most? I'm trying to remember the exact wording, but it was something along those lines. Now, he postulated that it was the forests of Poland, that is, the great Białowieża forest Mm -hmm. 
out in the eastern part of the country on the border with Belarus. It also has a great piece of that primeval forest. But it occurred to me, and I countered with the idea that I thought it was the Tatra Mountains, that is, the the southern mountains of Poland, uh, part of the Carpathian Mountain Range. And at that time, I didn't realize how right I was. But Mm. I only turned to working on the Carpathians after finishing my dissertation and first book. And I sort of came to the Carpathians via a circuitous route that is not via the mountains themselves, but more via the highlanders of the mountains, the uh, Tatra Mountain Gurale. Because I was very interested when working on my first book, how it was that peasants became national. Certainly in the 19th century, this was something that was very much a process, not a given by any stretch of the imagination. And I thought it would be interesting to pursue this further and to find a discrete group of peasants that I could start dealing with. And what occurred to me was to write about the Tatra Mountain Gurale. Now, Mm. so when I started that, I started reading, obviously, about the mountains and the Gurale, and I came across the mention that in 1873, Dr. Titus Haubinski discovered the Tatras. Okay. <laughs> now, that piqued my curiosity. I mean, discovering the Tatras in 1873 I mean, by that time, I already knew that there had been other people in the mountains prior to that time. Uh, Other scientists had been in the mountains prior to that time and so forth. So I I definitely wanted to pursue this further. And I set to reading the um, yearbook of what was founded at that time, the first Polish Alpine club called the Tatra Society. Now, in the very first issue of that yearbook, I came across articles dealing not only with the mountains and with the Tatra Mountain Gurale, but also with a people called the Hutzels. Now, I had never heard of the Hutzels, had no idea who they were, but the article led me to understand that they were a highland people in the Eastern Carpathians, that is, at the time of, of, of the, this, this period of, of the yearbook, the Eastern Carpathians were the southeastern tip of the Habsburg province of Galicia. And that was also where the Habsburg province of Galicia was also where the Tatra Mountains were found. So I said, well, gee, why don't I mm-hmm. look into this as well? And so Hmm. with time, the project kept going and going, and I ended up adding another discovery also to uh, uh, my uh, book, which is also the Bishtadu Mountains, but I can talk about those later, but I have- Sure. yeah, th- this is this is a great libretto, and 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 it's an excellent start, I think, to a, a series of questions that I have, starting with with the origin story, as you mentioned. So, this is in, in many ways almost mythic or legendary in Polish lore. The the Otkricha, the story of discovery that that you mentioned with Hałubinski. So, why do you think in your in your book, and we can talk about the contents as you lay out the chapters. Eight, this 1873 moment was kind of celebrated. I mean, what what was the what was the reason for this discourse of, of discovery? Why, why did that come to be? Yes, absolutely. Well, this is a very important moment, and it's something that I think I do uniquely in my book because recent literature on the Tatra Mountains tends to say, well. Sure, that we said that he discovered the Tatras then, but really there was all of this going on beforehand, and so on and so forth. But what I've come up to figure out is that what was meant by discovering was not the same thing as just being in the mountains or even doing research in the mountains. There's much more to this, how I would define discovery that makes it a much more significant thing. I mean, you had people, frankly, 
already doing uh, 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 scientific research in the mountains while first investigating them dating back into the late 18th century. You had people like Stanislav Stasius at the yes. beginning of the um, uh, 18th, uh, 19th century, excuse me, uh, getting up into the mountains and being inspired by them. And you had people, even in the 1860s, people coming from the region of Krakow who were already starting mm. to vacation there. So right. what can this possibly mean to discover the mountains in 1873. So um, let me ask a question about the contents of the book. So um, in in your book, you have several parts, Patrice, and I wonder if you could introduce those three parts to the readers. There are 12 chapters. Um, it starts with part one, the Tatra Mountains, and, and maybe if you could say a word about the other mountain ranges, because the Tatras are kind of part of the Carpathians, as I understand it. Yes. Part two, and the Eastern Carpathians, and then the Bishada, as you mentioned. Okay, well, let me just say something in general about the Carpathian Mountains first, if you will allow me, uh, just because sure. I'm sure not all readers are perfectly familiar with where they are and what they are. So... Uh, you know, for many people in the West, I know when I talk to people about my, my project, I get a big blank stare when I say I'm working on the Carpathians. <laughs> right. So they are a terra incognita in the West. But one way to think about them is they are essentially the continuation of the Alps of West and Central Europe. That is, you know, they arc across the region that we used to call Eastern Europe. Today, we'd call it Central and Eastern Europe. And um, they are essentially their most prominent physical feature. No, no pun intended here. But uh, the Carpathians are also a, a fragmented and differentiated mountain space, which is comprised of a, a series of mountain ranges. And in my book, as I think is coming out in this interview, I have focused on the northern slopes of the Carpathians, right. not the sunny right. southern slopes that we have in Slovakia or even the, the Romanian part that is so much more familiar to people who have are, mm. who have thought about individuals such as Dracula, let's say, right? <laughs> right. Dracula right. is not in this book. It's I've lost the selling point here. You're, it's okay. It's your next book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, who knows? Who knows? But anyway, so you've got this differentiated mountain uh, system, if you will. And my book is constructed out of three parts. Uh, as you mentioned, the first part deals with the Tatra Mountains, the Tatra Mountains of Galicia, again, in this period uh, prior to World War I. The second part deals with the Eastern Carpathians, that is the Hutzel region, of both Galicia and the Second Polish Republic, by which I mean to say that it, it begins before World War I, but it, it extends into the period after uh, World War I, into the interwar period. Mm -hmm. And then the third uh, region is that of the Bieszczady Mountains, of the Polish People's Republic, which of course means the period following World War II. Mm -hmm. And so let, let's talk a little bit about the sources that, that you're using, and, and we can go in order if you like, but I, I, I'm really fascinated by how you draw multilingual sources together in what, it, what amounts to be, at least in, in terms of its topography, a highland to lowland and, and lowland to highland space. And, and I, I'm you know, fascinated by how you redraw this borderland frontier, whatever region, contact zone region vertically, right? So you're not just using, let's say, the, the space or the metaphor of the nation state, but you're actually talking quite a lot about um, these multilingual zones. What were the sources that, that you were attracted to? Was it tourism? Was it travel guides? What, what sort of things did you end up finding on um, what, what ultimately becomes mass tourism and, and mass tourism to places like Zakopane and the Carpathians? 
Mm -hmm. Yes, well, I used a, a wide range of sources for this book. Uh, one of them happened to be, uh, happily enough, the materials of various alpine clubs uh, during this period. So again, I mentioned the Tatra Society yearbook. In the interwar period, there was an organization, a new alpine club, quite novel in shape, uh, called the Society of Friends of the Hutzel Region. And I was able to find some of the papers of that organization as well as their publications. I mean, finding the papers was not the easiest thing to do. I had to go to uh, Ukraine to do that. Right. Uh, they have a wonderful archive in Ivano-Frankivsk that had... Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I didn't know that. That was where I found the materials for the Society of Friends of the Hutzel region. Wow. And so okay. that was an amazing find there. And that in turn directed me to the Central Military Archive in Warsaw, mm. if you can believe that. I mean, you have to know something about the part two of my book to understand that connection. Uh, but I also was able to use things such as the uh, weekly of the student weekly of the Warsaw Polytechnic called Polytechnic uh, for mm -hmm. the last part of my book. But I, I try to use a, a wide variety of, of sources, again, archival as well as well, travel logs insofar as they were. And again, especially publications of these organizations that were so engaged in the discovery of the Carpathian Mountains, of these specific ranges within them. Mm -hmm. And could you talk a little bit, Patrice, about the tourism industry and, and the tourism boom? Because for, for people maybe who are among our New Books Network listeners, unfamiliar with the, the lore of Pol the Polish intelligentsia in places like Zakopane, I, I think this is exceptionally important. I mean, you mentioned the, the Zamoyski family. Um, I think, it, it, I forget which one it was, but um, how people begin invest, investing in this area in the 1890s and 19 aughts, how, how does that work exactly? And then ultimately, you know, who is attracted to all of, all of these hikes and to alpinism and hiking and skiing and so forth? Oh, yeah, that's a great question, Stephen, because it's important to understand that uh, at, in the, when I begin my book in the 19th century, this is in the uh, 1870s or thereabouts, there aren't too many people uh, within the larger Polish society who go on vacations, certainly not mountain vacations. Uh, at best, uh, people in the 19th century have this uh, interest in taking the water someplace out in uh, Western right. or Central Europe. I mean, that, that would be their idea of a summer vacation. Uh, and what happens in the course of my book, in the course of my research, the mountains become a huge draw. Zakopane, uh, uh, picturesquely situated at the foot of the Tatra Mountains, becomes... And it's transformed into this wonderful high-altitude mountain resort, a place mm -hmm. where people can go. And actually, they can also take the waters yeah. there, mind the spas. you. The spas. <laughs> right. You have to put spas in there. But you can also hike and climb the mountains. And that becomes uh, a really fashionable uh, mm -hmm. as the 19th century and early 20th century go on. Mm -hmm. And how, how does that become part of Polish literature? So you, you talk about um, several characters. I wonder if you might introduce Witkiewicz and, and um, uh, some others, you know, definitely I'm thinking of some of the, the, ca the canonical writers within um, Polish literature. You have the development of the Hutzel Theater, which I think is a fascinating story. Um, so what, what, what happens, you know, how do the how do these mountains then find a place among Polish writers, among the, the Polish intelligentsia? Well, this is part of the discovery. This is part of what makes the discoveries in my book discoveries, is the fact that you also have the, this phenomenon spreading more broadly and more deeply within society. Uh, let, you mentioned Stanisław Witkiewicz. He's certainly worth 
saying a thing or two about because it is he who actually helps to create this myth of, of Howobinsky. He's mm -hmm. the one who, in his very famous work, uh, 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 on the mountain pass that right. uh, it says repeatedly it was Dr. Titus Haubinski who discovered the Tatras for us. And one of the things I want to emphasize is this for us part. This is for Polish society. At the mm -hmm. time, a Polish society that was partitioned among three empires. And the Tatra mountain region became a magnet for people from those three regions, a place where they could congregate together. Because, of course, this is at a time when Galicia has a degree of autonomy, if you will. That is, life for mm -hmm. Poles is best in this part of the old partition Poland. So they come up into the mountains, they congregate, they, find, they become fascinated with highland culture as well as with hiking. And people write, such as Stanisław Witkiewicz is, is on the mountain passes, is the canonical work. But of course, there are many more works written mm -hmm. that have to deal with the mountains. In fact, you have this whole phenomenon at the turn of the century of what is called Young Poland or Młoda Polska, right, which Tadeusz right. Bojzielinski called either Tatrańska or Szatańska, meaning either <laughs> it was uh, interested with Tatra themes or with satanic themes. So that's the choice they have <laughs> at the turn of the century. And so right. they too engage in writing about the, the Tatras and in promoting them through their poems and other works. Right. And and I you know I love your descriptions of of, of modernity and, and this theme of modernism and modernity throughout the book. I wonder if you might introduce um, the Ukrainians. So let, let's talk a little bit about how the mountains also with the Hutsulshina become part of Ukrainian lore. And, and I'm particularly interested in the stories that you tell of, of villages and hamlets. You have Dora, you have Yaremcha. So there, there's an idea that maybe this region is a kind of Alps or Switzerland or Scotland. I'm not quite sure what the, what the best analogy if we want to use nations and nation states. But what, what does it become for the Ukrainians as well? I think this is an, an especially important part of your story. Yes. Well, definitely the Ukrainian uh, section, I think, is very differentiated because it means different things to different people. And you have different groups of Ukrainians. I mean, the Ukrainians are not a monolith by any stretch of the imagination in this book. You've mentioned uh, uh, the village of, of, of Dora, which is one place where you had people uh, who were nationally conscious Ukrainians coming to vacation. And they were doing this in a way to uh, sort of counterbalance what Poles and Jews were doing in the, the little hamlet of Yaremcha, which was right, actually was part of Dora for quite a right. long time. And there was this whole issue of trying to turn Yaremcha into a high altitude resort that is officially turned it into one. They wanted to separate from Dora, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which seemed to be more, shall we say, or let's say less interested in as becoming a uh, destination of that kind. It was much more of an agricultural area and perhaps much more influenced by some of the Hutzels there who may or may not have been interested in, in developing in this way as well. Uh, so you've got um, people coming from what was then the city of Stanisławów or Stanisławiv. And... Mm -hmm. um, the, or Ivano Frankivsk. Or Ivano Frankivsk <laughs> today, of course. Which, although yeah. I didn't have to admit, I didn't find any material on them in Ivano Frankivsk. That really would have been helpful if I had. So you've got people, mm. uh, Ukrainians, there saying we have to go and Ukrainianize this region. We can't let Poles and Jews develop it. And they weren't mm -hmm. so much into developing; they were more into turning the 
Hutzels into nationally conscious Ukrainians, as far as I can tell. So that's mm-hmm. a very mm-hmm. different story. But you also yeah. have uh, in the same region at the same time, but in a different village, a very different phenomenon going on. And this would be the village of Krivorivnia in Ukrainian, Polish Krivorivnia, uh, which is where the cream of the uh, Ukrainian uh, elites, the, uh, the highest of the intelligentsia vacationed. People like uh, Ivan Franko uh, yes. and, and others like, and, and, and the historian Hushevsky, right? They, he even had a house there to vacation in. And uh, this is to go back to a point that you mentioned earlier. You mentioned a Hutzel theater that I'd like to return to. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah. Tell us about that. What, how, I mean, because it, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, it, it's kind of, as you say, I, I love this point that it's like the Tatra panorama in, in Warsaw and it, it attracts a lot of the lowlanders. So what, what, what is it and when is it founded and, and how does it function? Well, the Hutzel Theater emerged in the first decade of the 20th century. Again, this is the period in which you had these uh, Ukrainian uh, 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 literary figures and, and, histor- and historians va- vacationing in the region. But they also uh, uh, invited people from outside to come into the region or outsiders ended up in the region. And by outsiders, here I mean people uh, like Mihailo Kotsubinsky and Hnat Hotkevich, both writers who lived in the Russian Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here, the most important person for the Hutzel Theater was Hnat Hotkevich, because he actually, he had, back in uh, the Russian Empire, he had directed a workers' theater, among other things. And right. he ends up spending years uh, in the Hutzel region and becomes absolutely enamored of the Hutzels. And he sees in them consummate actors, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way they posture, mm-hmm. interact with each other in, uh, in social settings and the like. So he thinks he can create a theater for the Hutzels with Hutzels performing, you know, for a broader audience. Now, of course, what does it mean for a Hutzel to perform when he has never seen a play before? That's a great question. <laughs> and they not yes, have a about... concept of, of the difference between reality and, you know, the imaginary, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, and I think it's such an important about this, like, point about, I think of the ballet russe and, and this kind of primi- primitivism and primitivization, I guess, um, because there, there is in many ways a, a fetishism, right, of, of the Hutzels, um, and there's a lot of imitation that that goes on with their discovery. So, my my question, I guess, for you, Patrice, going forward, is what what ends up changing into the interwar period, right? Because the Hutzel region, and with the folk celebrations in places like Yaremcha and Jabia, it it becomes a almost like an official destination, but I wonder if you can say a word about how this compares across the border. I know you're not really covering the Slovak case, but um, how, how, how does this change during and after World War I? I'm especially thinking of the Polish-Ukrainian War, as you mentioned. What, what are the things that happen into the Second Republic in, in Poland and beyond? Yeah, so these are important uh, questions and important issues, Stephen. Uh, well, one of the things that needs to be mentioned uh, is that places like Yaremcha were essentially destroyed during World War I. So in many ways, what you're going to have in the interwar period, when I start writing about the 1930s, is a disconnect between what was yes. done earlier 
and what happened in the 1930s. That said, you also have this very important phenomenon of the interaction between Poles and Hutzels during World War I. Uh, you have Polish legions ending up fighting in the Hutzel region and actually uh, bringing Hutzels into the Polish legions. This mm. is a really interesting development, one that it turns out that lowland Ukrainians were not at all keen on when they learned of the development. Exactly. And they, it, yeah. they, 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 they lobbied in Vienna to get this to stop and to transfer these Hutzels, whom they considered to be Ukrainians, into the Ukrainian version of the Polish legions, right? Because they, of course, had their own formation at that time. So you've got these mm -hmm. interesting layers of things going on. And one of the things that happens in the 1930s is you have Poles looking for ways to make Hutzels loyal citizens of the Second Polish Republic and to show that they had worked together in the past. Because, of course, in the interim, as you mentioned, Stephen, you also had the Ukrainian-Polish War, in which many Hutzels also fought, and this time they were fighting against the Poles. So you have first the Ukrainian, or the Polish Hutzel Brotherhood, if you will, which ends, and after World War I, you have this war that makes Hutzels want to have their Western Ukrainian Republic. And mm -hmm. so somehow uh, the Poles try to leapfrog across that. I mean, that war is never mentioned. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, and and I, I'm interested in how much is forgotten, because I, I think this is an excellent point of your book. I mean, in many ways, you're, you're hearkening back to multicultural legacies, not just in autonomous Galicia, but even further back into the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and, and well back, I, I think, in the history of Central and Eastern Europe. And, you know, here, I, I think it's really important for our listeners to understand that you are a historian who's written books on thousands of years of history. So um, what, what, what happens in this kind of commemoration? I, I know this is a big theme in your work, Patrice. What happens to Jewish populations? What happens to other sort of like populations, Jews, Poles, Armenians in this multicultural history going into post-war memory? And by that, I mean after World War I and, and also after World War II. Yes. Well, th those are two very different periods, to, to be sure, the period after World War I and the period after World War II. What I argue in the the section that deals with the interwar period is that the those engaged in the, the so-called discovery of the Hutzel region then were trying to integrate this mosaic of peoples within the Second Polish Republic uh, all into becoming loyal uh, uh, citizens of that country. And so they had a very much more shall we say, well, I don't want to say anachronistic because that's not true. I mean, Poles' uh, perceptions of what a Polish state should be were based upon what they had known or historically to be a Polish state, which was the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, right? This right. multi-ethnic, multi-denominational, huge entity. Of course, they didn't get all those territories back, but they did get a significant but a, a swath of territories that was mixed ethnically. And so, I mean, one of the challenges of the interwar period is to secure the borders of the country, by which I mean having the peoples of the borderlands also feeling very much in, uh, uh, involved and engaged in and appreciated and, 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 and ready to defend the state if necessary. So you've got that complete uh, you've got that sort of, of thrust in the interwar period. Now, after World War II, you have essentially the undoing of all that. Yeah. The undoing right. of all that. It's undone during the war. 
uh, with the Holocaust, uh, with uh, population exchanges that take place towards the end of the war, moving people who were uh, uh, considered to be Ukrainians, even if they may have been Lemkos or Boykos and thought of themselves as, as, as being local or Ukrainian or not. I mean, the, 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 the sense of identity was varied, moving them into the Soviet Union, when you had Poles coming into the new Polish state. Uh, and uh, you had Operation Vistula, which importantly got rid of the rest of that population, dispersing it within the, the north and the west of the Polish People's Republic. So you have a, a country that now wants to be a true nation state. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is such an important question in, in Polish and, and Ukrainian and I would say larger Central and East European history um, as you cover it well. And, and I can't possibly do it justice that, you know, famous pilsudski Dmowski quarrel and, and this idea of the tension between the multicultural state or republic, federal republic and, and nation states in, in the history of the 20th century. Um, I want to I want to move forward, Patrice, and, and ask you a little bit about post nineteen forty five and the and the PRL, so the Polish People's Republic. After you know, really after the war and and, and under socialism, so what what happens to these regions then? And and I'm thinking of Bishchada especially. I love your description in the last part or the last several chapters of the book, you describe people going to these areas almost as if it's a wilderness and and it's a place of bums and dreamers, as you describe it, bums and dreamers, misfits and hippies, lovers of nature, poets and artists, borderland rebels and true originals, all (laughs) self-reliant and above all, freedom-loving, drawn to the wild expanses of the Bishada, a region that seemed to serve as a relief valve for the still young state socialist country. Could you say a few words about this? What what happens as it, the region itself gets transformed in the 1960s and in the 1970s with, with tourism? Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Well, one thing that's worth noting is the fact that the Bishchada Mountains were not this wild wilderness prior to World War II. I mean, they were very much inhabited by the Lemkos and Boykos and Jews and others that I talk about, talked about already. But because of the war, because of the fighting that also takes place in the first years after the war with the, 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 the UPA, you know, the Ukrainian insurgents, you have much of it burned down left for about a decade as a no-man's land. And this no-man's land is transformed into this new, if derivate, wilderness because all these trees grow up, bushes, everything. It becomes totally wild and wonderful in in Mm -hmm. an interesting sort of way. And this becomes a place where one can now go and hike to one's content, now, uh, I should mention this in contrast to the Tatra Mountains, which become a national park in, yes. I believe it's 1954. That's right. And uh, so you can hike in the Tatras, but you have to go along the paths. You can't go here or there. I mean, there's all these restrictions. Whereas in the Bishchada, there are no restrictions. And that mm-hmm. is what Poles of the 1960s and 70s love, that is those at least who are interested in uh, tourism in this region. And, and there are, there, they, come, they come into the millions, really, when you talk about the various levels of tourism in the, in the larger, larger Bishchada region. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I would guess, you know, for trekkers, like I, I'm, I'm coming at this as a person who lived in Colorado for a long time, and I, I know how important um, hiking is and, and alpinism and, and the, the millions of landscape photos that exist of the Rockies and, and places like the Alps, too. But there seems in your book to be a, a, almost like a, a capitalism that takes place within socialism. And, and I guess I, I'm, I'm really interested in the, the life, let's say, of these 
um, places. If you can talk about the biography of, of a place or no place, um, where do where do people go, and then what happens to these tourism and leisure destinations over time through the last years of the PRL, and, and ultimately when Poland turns back to capitalism? Mm-hmm. Well, again, you've got this tension throughout the uh, post-war period between those who want simply to trek, you know, with with no restrictions camp wherever they want and all of that, and the regime, which is not so intent upon leaving this region in its wonderful wilderness uh, state. It rather wants to treat the Bieszczady like any other part of post-war Poland. That is, it turned it it into a functioning, uh, economically developed clog in the socialist wheel, right? Right. So you've got this this great tension here that extends from, well, it's from the very beginning because it's always very hard to finance tourist development in the region because the the, the monies tend to go towards logging or rock quarrying Mm -hmm. or doing other sorts of things that the the trekkers don't want to see in the region. You have the construction Mm -hmm of these uh, highway loops that enable the, the, the foresters to do their work. You have the construction of a reservoir on, reservoirs on the, on the San River, which create these big, beautiful lakes that people want to vacation by, but which the regime yeah, exactly. seems incapable More. of understanding what kind of, 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 of a resort to create there. I mean, they have these barracks right. and things like that that people can live in, and it's very primitive. They're not developing it, it the way, that part of the region, the way they should or could. Mm-hmm. And, and there are, I mean, there are some destinations that are very famous, right? Like Morskia, Oko. Does, does that change, let's say, in the, in the 90s? Are there people sort, sort of investing in these areas, or, or is there an attempt to kind of maintain its pristineness and, and keep it as a metaphor or a symbol of, of authentic nation, nationness? I mean, what, what happens in these places as, as destinations? Well, places like Morske Oko these days are absolutely mobbed. <laughs> I mean, you, you can't go there. <laughs> I mean, if you want to, there's a, there's a wonderful little lodge or a hut, you know, for, for hikers right near there. If you want to stay there, you're going to have a very hard time getting a place. Even yes. getting there, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's absolutely cra- crazy. I mean, because that still tends to be the big destination for people in the Tatra Mountains. I mean, it was a site of pilgrimage in the period yes. before World War I. I mean, it's less a pilgrimage in that way, but it's just a thing that everyone wants to see when you get to the mm-hmm. Tatras. Uh, so, I mean, right now, I mean, I can't remember when I last uh, had a chance to, to, to spend a night in the <laughs> Morsioko hut, or even, you know, to get in, you, you need to get into the hut if you want to climb Risa, because essentially you have to start extremely early in the morning to climb the highest of the Polish peaks that towers over Morskioko. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, so much has changed in, in I guess, the this, you know, with the, the demographic boom, I mean, it began in the 1870s with a few thousand or few maybe a few hundred thousand people. And um, so let's talk a little bit about where your work is, could be placed in um, in environmental history and borderland studies and and tourism. I know that you mentioned a lot of works uh, that, that have been produced. You mentioned some, Simon Shama, for instance. I mean, you have Andy Denning's work on, on skiing, mm-hmm. um, you know, or Diane Conker's edited volume. This is a really interesting one on, on tourism. Yes. Could, could you talk a little bit about the, the secondary literature and, and in particular in the Polish context? I, I think our listeners would be um, curious to hear more, you know, Alison Frank's work on, on Alpine Central Europe too. Yeah. Um, what, what, what sort of works you're, you're interested in and then how you place this, 
discovering the Carpathians? Well, again, uh, you know, there's not that much work done on the Carpathian mountain region. You just mentioned Alison Frank's wonderful book called Oil Empire, which is a completely different take on the region because it's the developmental, uh, you know, the development of the, of the oil industry which uh, is, is so important to her is not tourism, which would be more at, uh, uh, in, in more clashing with that. Uh, so I tried to position myself vis-a-vis other sorts of alpine literatures, for example. Uh, see that my book is falling into the category of mountains and nation building, for example, something that you would see in Marco Armiero's Rugged Nation, Mountains in the Making of Modern Italy, wonderful work. Hmm, or, I don't know that. Or Kate yeah. Keller's Apostles of the Alps, Mountaineering and Nation Building in Germany and Austria. So I sort of see my book fitting very well with that, that sort of in, uh, environmental history type of work. So it's a his, environmental history, but with this national, national cast to it. It's not a mm-hmm. pure environmental history, such as a wonderful book I can mention and I, one could actually recommend by Anthony Amato. I read his dissertation probably 20 years ago, and his book has just come out last year. It came out after my uh, manuscript was turned in, so I wasn't able to use the, the final product in my research. And he has a book entitled The Carpathians, the Hutzels, and Ukraine an environmental history. Oh, wow. I don't know that yeah, either. Thank you. It just came out at the end of last year. Hmm. Uh, so it's definitely also worth uh, uh, paying attention to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think, Patrice, that, that, I mean, in talking about the three parts of your book and the separate ranges and sub-ranges of the Alps, so, you know, Carpathians, Tatras, and so forth, that this area still represents a form of escapism? Is, is that a fair description for Poles and Ukrainians and, and others? I'm, I'm thinking of that also great edited volume on socialist escapes with Kathleen Justino and, and Alexander Vary and Kathleen, Catherine Plum. It, do in, you in think which I in have con- a piece, ab- uh, incidentally. Yeah, I, yes, <laughs> I, I, should, I should plug that because you have a piece on, on Wild West there, um, Poland's Wild West. But, I, you know, I'm interested in contemporary commentary as well. Do, do you think for the average Pole today, knowing what you know about the ability to travel or maybe the ability not to travel within the EU, that it's it's still an area for, for escapism, that, that people are going to this high altitude as they did in the old days of Magic Mountain and Sanatoria to, to recover their health? Does it, does it exist that way in memory still? Well, I think it's changed. Uh, I don't think you had that same kind of escapism, certainly not the same sense of need for, 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 for that kind of an experience. Uh, that said, of course, you have countries, you know, Poland and, and Ukraine, that are you know increasingly more developed, industrialized, and the like. So you have people wanting to get away from it all, at least in the sort of sense of vacationing. You know, and this is a tamer version of escapism, I guess I would say, not not nearly as ideologically driven, perhaps, as some of the earlier instances of this. Hmm. 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 Yeah. Well, uh, let's, let's talk finally about um, your contribution to Polish studies and how you envision this. As um, if you could give us some takeaways from the book as as a, an entry point for our listeners at New Books Network into not just Polish history but the larger history of Central and, and Eastern Europe. Um, talk a bit about that and and maybe what else you're interested in and, and working on in your current. Mm-hmm. Well, as far as the takeaway is concerned, I mean, one of the things I argue in the book is that the significance of the mountains transcended their remote and peripheral position vis-a-vis the Polish and Ukrainian nations, which after all are nations of lowlands for prim- primarily, right? These are nations of the, the plains or fields or the steppe. Uh, I also argue that the mountains served as realms of experimentation, uh, places where 
people would gain a new perspective on life and be able to see their way to answers, or at least possible answers, to the burning questions of the day that one found in the lowlands. Uh, mm. So that would be definitely part of what I would want uh, to give as a takeaway. Uh, I've forgotten what mm-hmm. the rest of your question was. Well, even I, as it's, usual. I, I guess... I guess, you know, this, this was sort of begging the question. It's almost like a spiritual discovery and, and, you know, I think in a kind of classic way, but maybe even in an, in a countercultural or nonconformist way, I think in lore, this is where the, the mountains still um, hold such a strong place in, in memory as, as landscape. I wanted to ask you about your current projects, Patrice, because I think our, our listeners will want to know. I mean, you cover so much history in, in your books, and, and this is one reason why I, I read you all the time and recommend your work. Um, so what, what sort of things are, are you attracted to, if it's borderland history or um, ecosystems or environmental history? What, what, are, what are your interests? Yeah, well, you know, I think I haven't exhausted the Carpathians yet. I mean, there's still certain things that I need to get out. This book, believe it or not, is actually a, a relatively short book. Uh, and there is so, and it focuses primarily on this facet of discovering, right? That's the, the red thread that runs through the entire book. But there's, there's more that one could do with it in a, in a sort of environmental historical way. Uh, I think there's still other issues. Uh, I have a, an article that just come out in history today uh, that is, is a spinoff from the book. So I'm, I'm doing different things like that right now. And mm-hmm. I, I guess going on from here, I'm also thinking a little bit more about continuing with peasants, believe it or not. Oh, great. There's this whole new movement in, in Poland today in sort of rethinking the, the, the place of peasants in Polish history. Mm. And uh, I've been yeah. waiting for months to get a cop, get my hands on a book that I know is now on its way to me, that would help mm-hmm. me to better to place myself within this new realm of of investigation. Perhaps do something in that regard, but that's still mm-hmm. still pretty much up in the air right now. Yeah, I, I think that's that's great. I mean, it's important. You know, people often overlook. Um, 1846, that that moment, and you describe it, you know, in your work um, consistently is almost as important as the other two uprisings in the 19th century. I think there's a lot of great work um, that remains to be done on on not just the Narod but also the the Lud. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I really look I really look forward um, to that, and I, I just want to end by saying congratulations and and thank you um, for for writing uh, this book. I, I hope people will pick it up. Uh, and we have been speaking here at the New Books Network with our guest, author and historian, Patrice Dabrowski. She's the author of a new book out with Cornell University Press 2021, and it's called The Carpathians, Discovering the Highlands of Poland and Ukraine. So once again, um, gratulatia. Thank you, Patrice, for, for joining us on the podcast today. And thank you so much, Stephen, for having me and for all of your wonderful work uh, promoting other people's work. <laughs> of course. And thank you. And until next time, I'm your host, Stephen Siegel on the New Books Network.